Hi everyone, welcome to session four of Dear Mr. Potter, the Harry Potter seminar. I'm your genial host, Alistair Stevens, here on a rare Thursday night seminar. This, I think, may be the first Thursday night seminar that I've recorded. It has been a long week, you guys. Lonnie and I were out of town last week, and I just had to push the Tuesday seminar back because there was no way that I'd be able to make it through these chapters in time. But it is great to be here. I know, unfortunately, we lost some of our regular Twitter and YouTube contributors, but I think we've picked up a few new people who are here to join us for the first time tonight. So hello to all of you. I see you all here in Twitter. You can tweet, of course, using the hashtag SWDMP. Wow, I told you. It's been a while. I've been rusty here. Uh, SWDMP, Swidomp will get my attention on Twitter, or you can contribute right there in the YouTube chat. I can keep my eye on you all there, all you Slytherins and Hufflepuffs and Gryffindors. Team Ravenclaw. Team Ravenclaw, you guys. All right. (laughs) We have a couple of really interesting chapters to get to tonight. It is not going to be a particularly manic or packed session of the uh, Storywonk seminar tonight because, well, these chapters are the chapters in which we really begin the boarding school adventure part of our story. We have little episodic encounters throughout the next four, five, six chapters, all of which will build toward the climax of the novel. We will get a complete story. This is not, you know, a, a wildly divergent plot. We will get a cohesive whole, thankfully, but we're going to take the long road around. And that's going to give us some great insight and some great opportunities to speculate about the wizarding world. That's always a lot of fun, of course. But tonight, we're just basically going to move through these episodes without too much commentary between. Before we get to all of that... Oh, I see you all here. (laughs) Everyone's shouting at me in the YouTube chat. (laughs) Oh, and Kay says on Twitter that her Wi-Fi isn't up to it. I'm so sorry, Kay. You're going to be picking this up in the podcast, I know. But hopefully... Let me say this right up front. Let me put myself out there on the line here. Hopefully, the terrible, horrifying audio issues that have plagued the podcasts for the last few weeks will now be dealt with. Those of you who are technically minded might be interested to know that there was a gain control that was automatically being adjusted somewhere in my webcam software. How interesting that my webcam should control my microphone. That seems to be fixed. Hopefully, I guess, I'm going to sound really stupid if this goes out in the podcast and the audio quality is just as bad as it ever was. We'll see. I am working on it, you guys. I I do want this to sound as crisp and clean as it possibly can. As crisp and clean as our other podcasts do, there are compromises that we must endure for the sake of the live broadcast. All right. Let's get into this. I'm getting some feedback from somewhere. But I think that has killed it. All right. (laughs) I don't know. Four weeks in and we're still having troubles. Teething troubles. As I said in a tweet earlier today, this is an imperfect science. Let us get right into it. (laughs) So many Team Ravenclaws, Team Hufflepuff arguments going on. A lot of you are Ravenclaw. I'm I'm guessing that. That doesn't surprise me that much. Let's get right into it. As I said, we're going to basically focus on the two chapters tonight, chapters 8 and 9, the chapters that I have grouped together under the title Friends and Enemies, for obvious reasons. These are our episodic adventures. This is the start of this part of the book. But before we get to all of that, I wanted to pick up on some thoughts from the forum and some emails that I've received in the last week about the division and the distinction between the wizarding world and the mundane world, the muggle world. There's been some really interesting conversation about it. And when you stop to think, (laughs) and when you stop to read very carefully, as we have been, the book is astonishingly vague not just about the Wizarding World in general, but about Hogwarts in particular. How old is it? Where is it? 
how many students attended. J.K. Rowling has, of course, said in interviews that it is in Scotland and that there is a student body of roughly 1,000 kids at any given time. But that's not consistent. That seems enormously high. In fact, given the relatively small first-year intake we see described in the previous chapter, if that's consistent, there would be something like 200, maybe at most 250 students in the entire school. Otherwise, we would have to allow for five times the number of first-year students and a, a, a proportional increase in the number of, of faculty members, support staff, dormitories come to that. The whole school seems too small to be the kind of institution that J.K. Rowling envisioned. Moreover, it forces us, at least within the span of the last chapter, to envision a much larger Great Hall, one of the most striking set pieces of Hogwarts, one of the most... most uh, powerful and, and evocative locations in all of Hogwarts is this great hall, a hall that can seat 200 students plus faculty plus support staff. That seems doable. A thousand students, maybe 1,200 people in total. That seems like something else entirely, even for the wizarding world. If we follow the textual evidence, then, we're left with a much smaller school within the span of this book. And that means that according to to the beginning of tonight's reading, that there are almost as many staircases in Hogwarts as there are students. An odd piece of architecture. Usagi is asking me on Twitter, is Ravenclaw synonymous with Wonk? I'm stunned that I haven't thought about this question up until now. I'm inclined to say yes. I'm inclined to say that the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, neither to gain power nor to necessarily, you know, make the world a better place by direct application. <laughs> that does seem a particular, uh, a particularly Ravenclawian uh, trait, doesn't it? Jennifer Slytherin, don't hate me, she says. Jennifer, we would never hate you. Slytherins are welcome here too. All are welcome here. Yes. Oh, Lance. Lance is always there with the math and with the detail. Lance says, 20 brooms for two houses, the first year classes, 280 students. Yeah, that seems about right, doesn't it? That seems to feel right, according to the descriptions that we've received so far. It's possible that there could be more. It's possible even with the within the text of the book, there's enough flexibility there that we might infer that there are maybe 350, maybe 400 students. But to go all the way up to 1,000 students, yeah. <laughs> oh, Chris takes objection. No, don't say that. Hardworking Hufflepuffs can be wonks too. Sure. No, absolutely you can, Chris. Absolutely you can be a wonk too. You're just primarily super loyal. Uh, super loyal, excuse me. Very A very badgery trait, loyalty. We'll talk more about the houses in due course. Um, let's return, though, to, to Hogwarts and to the details that we know about Hogwarts specifically. Those details which are enumerated within the pages of this book, I have to say there are very few. And they are far between. We know that Harry's parents were educated here, as was Hagrid, albeit for only a short while. We know that Hogwarts stood as a bastion against Voldemort's campaign for power prior to his fall. We do know from the pages of this book that it is not the only school for wizards, partly because Hagrid describes it as the finest school for wizards, which implies the existence of more than one, and when Draco meets Harry in Diagon Alley, he asks if he is going to Hogwarts, which would also imply the existence of more than one school. Hagrid implies that Hogwarts is even safer than Gringotts, a detail which will come back to us at the end of tonight's reading. And apart from the details we get directly from Harry's experiences, that's about it. 
It isn't even confirmed in the books that Hogwarts is in Scotland, though yes, J.K. Rowling leans on that rather heavily, and there is a detail in, I believe, <laughs> I should have looked this up, it's Chamber of Secrets. I think it's Chamber of Secrets, where not only do we get the shot of the beautiful viaduct, but we also have reference made to Hogwarts being close to Dufton, uh, which is actually very, very close to where I live. Dufton is is just a little ways away from the coast in Murray, in the northeast of Scotland, so that's... Uh, very, very close to where I used to live, in fact. I have spent many a happy afternoon around the distilleries of the, the, the uh, Dufton area. Let me tell you. Oh, we're having some speculation here about Hermione choosing her house. I want to push some of the house discussion back just a little. Um, but yes, we will definitely return to this. When we have a little more information uh, from the pages of the book, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely return to discussion of the houses and the uh, the virtues and vices that get you placed in a particular house. So, we know these few things about Hogwarts. But the deal is this. Within the pages of the first book in particular, Hogwarts doesn't work like a real place. It doesn't function like a real place. It doesn't work as though it's a castle in Scotland. It works as though it's otherworldly. It works as though it may as well be in fairy. It may as well be in Narnia. And that's consistent with the way that the wizarding world is treated, I think. So to what degree, and, and, and how can we tell <laughs> to what degree, the wizarding world is connected with our own or is entirely separate from our own? We don't know exactly how muggles would react to Hogwarts at this point uh, in the series. And I should say, too, a lot of this stuff is going to be retconned. We are going to get better explanations of how these two worlds fit together and how exactly the, the, the shrouding works, how exactly muggles are kept ignorant of the existence of wizards and the wizarding world, but we don't have those yet. Those are conspicuously absent from this book. In this book, things work very differently, and that's completely okay. It is completely okay that J.K. Rowling revises and retcons some of these details as we move forward through the series. That is, I mean, for one thing, thematically resonant with the idea of, of Harry's maturation. You know, as he's coming of age, so the world around him is coming of age. Here in this book, though, we get a much straighter, much more magical explanation. Let's consider, for example, the points of interface that we've seen thus far between the wizarding world and the muggle world. We've, have, we've had, excuse me, two uh, leakies, um, the Leaky Cauldron, <laughs> and, which I refer to in my head as Leakies only because Leakies is the name of a used bookstore in the fine city of Inverness, which I used to haunt uh, as a younger man. So for some reason in my head, that always contracts the Leakies. It's a great place if you ever find yourself in Inverness. Leakies Bookstore. I can't recommend it highly enough. So the Leaky Cauldron and Platform 9 and 3 quarters. The Leaky Cauldron, we had a little speculation about this last week. Um, and, and I went back to read the passage and even the passage itself is a little oblique, but we kind of we just have to take the detail that we have given to us. The passage says that the passers-by uh, on, on the street outside the Leaky Cauldron have trouble looking at it. Their eyes slide past it to the bookstore next door, but unlike the entrance to Platform, three, uh, platform 9 and 3 quarters, Harry is able to see the Leaky Cauldron. He has trouble with it. He probably wouldn't have noticed it hadn't if, if, if Hagrid hadn't pointed it out to him. But he can still see it and, and recognize it as a part of the world. Platform nine and three quarters, of course, has a completely shrouded, uh, a completely shrouded entrance. In both cases, it is possible to argue that we're seeing 
disguised, magically disguised entrances to spaces which do exist in the real world. It is possible that if you floated above London on a balloon or, or, or if you were suspended from a helicopter, you could see the, the quirky little street of Diagon Alley, assuming that it isn't also, you know, disguised from above. On the other hand, though, and stepping back from the literal description that began in the book to a more kind of a more philosophical, a more thematic point of view, that seems impossible. <laughs> if the only entrance to Diagon Alley is through the Leaky Cauldron, how are deliveries made? How do the shopkeepers of Diagon Alley get home? Where do they shop for groceries and the things that aren't available in that area? Where do the goblins of Gringotts go to relax or to sleep? Do they have houses outside of Diagon Alley? It certainly doesn't seem, judging from Harry's description, to be big enough to encompass an entire community, an entire culture, particularly a community and culture that doesn't ever go outside. So if there's another entrance to Diagon Alley, does that mean that the entrance through the courtyard behind the Leaky Cauldron is only the point of interface between the mundane and the muggle world? And if that's true, does that description hold for platform nine and three quarters? Is the entrance to the platform itself only the point of interface between the muggle and magical worlds? When the train pulls out and passes the Houses of London as it's heading north, is it really in London? Does it seem possible that, that the fine folks who live there could ignore this, this huge steam train that, that passes by? Functionally, it seems as though the thresholds divide the muggle world from the wizarding world. That the point of interface between the two worlds is not when Harry gets off the train and steps onto the platform, nor yet when he crosses the lake to arrive at, at Hogwarts itself. It's when he passes that transition point. It is clear from future books, and I think we could probably infer from this book that muggles can under certain circumstances, cross those thresholds. It's not that they are prevented, it's that they are dissuaded, uh, which seems consistent with our depiction of magic, and, and certainly speaks to an older fairy tale tradition of, of glamour and illusion and, and, and suggestion, rather than outright you know, blockading of entrances. That seems possible, but it also seems as though those thresholds function as hard and fast points of transfer between the two worlds. <clears throat> Let me see where I am here. I've been jumping around in my notes, and I know that I have other things to say on this. Oh yes, we're getting some points here that that uh, there are further yet. There are further uh, restrictions. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, Magda says it hurts my brain to think about it. Extremely suspended disbelief on my part to enjoy the narrative, which I'm happy to do. Magda, you have absolutely put your finger on it. That is exactly what we are called upon to do here. Later on, J.K. Rowling will give us evidence. She will give us enough clues and enough hard information to build a working sense of how these two things fit together. By the time we get to the Ministry of Magic stuff, we'll have a strong sense of how these worlds work, how they, how they, <laughs> I was going to say fit together, but that's not quite right, how they are at least contiguous. This is a different type of story. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is not a realistic contemporary fantasy. It's a fairy tale. It's of a much older tradition. And we are called upon not simply to suspend our disbelief, but to actively invest our belief. We are asked to believe in these things, and we are rewarded with this magical, mythical tale. 
And this is one of the points that I was addressing last week, that while it is tempting, even within the framework of this book, and given some of the, the wonderful world-building that J.K. Rowling does in the future, within these pages, we have to try and treat this like a fairy tale. We have to remember that the real reason that there are four houses is for narrative functionality, not because, you know, we're getting into complicated psychological readings. That will come later, but it's less now. The broad strokes are there, but there are innumerable details. There are large details, small details that that will need to be changed, revised, explained away, somehow textually massaged before this world makes sense. That is completely fine, and I am glad of it, because it shows a maturity in the storytelling. It really does display a richness of 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 fictionality. <laughs> this this sub-creation, as Tolkien called it, the secondary creation, is so rich that it affords us this kind of, of suspension of belief. While the future books will change our perspective, quite simply, right now, the magical world functions like Narnia. It functions like Oz, and Harry isn't in Kansas anymore. Oh, and Robbie pulls out right there. Entrance is the wardrobe to Narnia. Yes, I think that's exactly it. I think that is exactly it. Um, the moments of transition are hard and fast. And we'll, we'll bring these worlds closer together. But, yeah. And Jennifer says, I don't know if J.K. Rowling had worked out all the details for this book. These things are more fleshed out in later books. I think that's right. I, I am loath to say simply that she hadn't had the details worked out yet. Um, because this could also be entirely purposeful. This could also be a deliberate act on her part. I think that it's no coincidence that we see the books get more complex, more naturalistic, and certainly darker as we progress. This is a children's fantasy, and that works beautifully as a starting point for this entire adventure. And of course, connects us. Oh, as, as Arlene says there on Twitter, we're to look at this world from an 11-year-old's view. We absolutely are. Yes. And that's not to say that it is simplistic nor childish. I think the 11-year-olds in general are more capable of discernment and, and, and perspicacity than we generally give them credit for. Fictional 11-year-olds even more so. But we are supposed to look at this. We are supposed to simply take this world as being what it is without necessarily trying to understand and unpick the, the details that support the existence of this world. So I hope that's kind of given you some sense of the framework, some sense of the, the, the perspective that I'm trying to bring to this book. I do completely acknowledge the, the conversations about geography, about the economy, about, you know, society and, and hierarchy, it, all the, the complicated discussions that we can have about how exactly Hogwarts functions as a school, because my God, we're going to encounter some questions on that score tonight. But I do want to keep you within this fictional frame. When we try to it may seem silly for me to say, when we try to analyze too much, sometimes we can destroy the thing that we're analyzing. Of course, analysis is a worthy thing, but you have to analyze something on its own terms. And trying to deconstruct this novel, and trying to make this novel fit and work and function and move according to the rules that are laid out in the later novels, is to deny this novel its special power and place. I hope that helps. <laughs> all right all right good 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 and yet we're going to have some discussions about the rules of magic and things like that tonight because there's some some really interesting stuff there yes have i talked before about the suspension of disbelief tell me if i have tell me if i haven't i don't know I, I'll, I'll maybe address it next week um get in touch and, and let me know if i've talked about this the, the difference between the suspension of disbelief and why that's actually a terrible and and 
and and flimsy and and <laughs> insubstantial thing, and the notion of the investment of belief, um, and the 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 reciprocal you know investment that that books give to readers and that readers give to books. I'll, I'll maybe talk about that. Uh, Next week, if I haven't already talked about it. I, I talk about so many things, I don't even know. Let us get into tonight's reading. Be sure, guys, jump in with questions, jump in with comments, jump in with observations. There are subtle storytelling elements here. Uh, and we're going to begin with one of my favorites. We begin with this quick account of Harry adjusting to his new celebrity status, along with an explanation of the variable geography of Hogwarts. Uh, oh, and the ghostly interferences, of course. I'm not sure when exactly I'm going to get to talk about the ghosts. It's not going to be tonight. Um, that may have to wait for a wrap-up session, because the ghosts, while it's a nice detail of world-building, they don't exert a huge amount of influence in the story, and there are almost always more pressing things that need to be discussed. Um, in this case, we're going to discuss the, the neat little detail tucked away right at the beginning of tonight's reading, right at the beginning of Chapter 8, The Potions Master, Harry and Ron manage to get on the wrong side of the caretaker on their very first morning. They get lost, and they end up trying to open the locked door to the forbidden third-floor hallway. Their first morning. Of all the hallways in Hogwarts, and even if it is a school of 200 students, it is still labyrinthine. It is still immense. It is still, you know, implausible that they should find their way accidentally to this particular door on their very first morning. And that forces us to ask, given that we've just had this account of Hogwarts' variable geography, of the way that rooms and staircases and passageways can move, the way that they don't always connect in quite the way that you remember them connecting, what, if anything, led Harry and Ron to the forbidden door to the forbidden hallway? Did they really end up there by accident? Was it something external to them? Was it fate, destiny? chance prophecy? Was it Hogwarts itself? Did Hogwarts somehow guide them there? Let's, uh, let's stick a pin in that for now, because <laughs> we're going to talk more about that at the end of tonight's reading for obvious reasons. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, we're having some great discussion here on on uh, the YouTube channel too. Garrett says, when you're younger, you don't necessarily need the explanation spelled out so long as the world is internally consistent. Those are the magical words, aren't they, Garrett? Internally consistent. As long as the world obeys its own rules, then we can invest in it. We can believe in it. We can be suspended by it, in it. We can occupy this secondary world. We can really connect emotionally with the story. And I have to say that one of the great pleasures of this book is how few details you are given. The broad strokes really are, I think, generally consistent. There's some trouble with, with the math. Uh, there's some trouble with, you know, dates, with, with uh, the chronology here. That settles down a little bit now, now that we're here, now that we're doing, you know, now that we're actually telling the story that we came to tell. Um, but in broad strokes, Harry's experience feels very real. It feels very vibrant. Um, and that, I think, speaks to J.K. Rowling's greatest strength, which is not in her plotting, it's not in her world-building, goodness knows it's not in her grasp of, of numbers, it's in her characterization. These people... Well, I, I, tell me what you think of this. <laughs> I certainly feel this way. These people feel real. 
these people feel vibrant. These people people feel complicated in a very naturalistic way, despite their fantastical surroundings. Great. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, and, and, and Robbie's pulling out to internal consistency. And the, the author writes in good faith. That's really quite a beautiful phrase, Robbie. Thank you for sharing that one. Yes. Good, good, good. All right. So, we're seeing some we're seeing some talk of foreshadowing. <laughs> yes, we're seeing some talk of foreshadowing and not more with Harry and Ron finding their way to the forbidden doorway, to the forbidden hallway. So we'll get back to that later on. We're given a brief explanation of Harry's timetable, at least his first pass at his timetable, I guess. He studies astronomy and herbology, notably the only subjects also studied in the real world, and you have to wonder if the faculty of Hogwarts, you know, did that on purpose. They introduce, they strive to introduce at least their new students to wizarding life through the most relatable subjects. I don't know if that's a real piece of the world building, but it feels good. Um, He also studies the history of magic, charms, transfigurations, and of course, defense against the dark arts. And it is within the defense against the dark arts class that we arrive at our first slide. And a piece of prominent foreshadowing. The class everyone had really been looking forward to was Defense Against the Dark Arts, but Quirrell's lessons turned out to be a bit of a joke. His classroom smelled strongly of garlic, which everyone said was to ward off a vampire he'd met in Romania, and was afraid would be coming back to get him one of these days. His turban, he told them, had been given to him by an African prince as a thank you for getting rid of a troublesome zombie— But they weren't sure they believed this story. For one thing, when Seamus Finnegan asked eagerly to hear how Quirrell had fought off the zombie, Quirrell went pink and started talking about the weather. For another, they had noticed that a funny smell hung around the turban, and the Weasley twins insisted that it was stuffed full of garlic as well, so that Quirrell was protected wherever he went. I include this slide mostly to show how J.K. Rowling distracts us. <laughs> how she has this this masterful sleight of hand. When you have a significant detail that you have to give to your audience, in order to play fair with your readers, you have to share the information that is going to be necessary later, it is important that you don't deceive outright. It is important that you don't conceal but it's also important, obviously, for, for powerful reasons, that you don't make it too obvious. Here we have the sleight of hand. We highlight it, and we invite the audience, through the eyes of the protagonist, to simply draw the wrong conclusion. It's great. It's beautifully done. Note, too, I, I, I talked at length last week about the Wizarding World's relationship with antiquity, uh, with its... Rejection of modernity, not just as a, not just as a way of life, but as a means of viewing the world. In the wizarding world, the older something is, the better something is. That seems to to hold true throughout. But this is 1991. It doesn't make entirely consistent sense in the real world that Romania and Africa should be treated in this this mystical, exotic way. But it does make sense within Hogwarts. 
in real life, 1991, Romania was, was what? Recovering from the Romanian Revolution? Recovering from the, the, the execution of Nicolae, uh, Nicolae Ceausescu? That was 1991 in Romania. But in Hogwarts, Romania is still a mist-shrouded land of gypsies and of vampires. Being in Hogwarts does something to your sense of time and your sense of the world outside. The world seems like an older and more mythic place. That, I believe, is the bias to antiquity that we discussed. Jump in if you have thoughts on this. <laughs> ER Lamp on Twitter says, ha ha ha, sure, zombies, whatever, Quirrell. <laughs> Spoiler barricade. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, Maya brings up in the YouTube chat, I always thought it was interesting that they use quills and parchment despite the story taking place in the 1990s. Absolutely, that's exactly the same thing. We see a rejection not just of the actual artifacts of modern technology. It's not just that, I don't know, uh, is, I, I believe that there's an explanation given in a later book that magic interferes with the functioning of technology, but it's so much more than that. Everything harkens back to, at, at the latest, the 1950s, you know, and, and much of it, uh, much of it refers to a much older tradition. Yeah. All right. Let's push on. Let me cancel that slide and come back to you. So Hermione excels early in the class, of course, and Harry discovers, much to his consolation, that he isn't so very far behind the others. Finally, by Friday, we are ready to take our first potions class under the tutelage of one Professor Snape, the head of Slytherin. Oh, uh, before we get to that, though, we have this um, we have this quick beat where the owl arrives with an invitation for Harry to come and have tea with Hagrid. Uh, so that we'll, we'll, we'll squirrel that away because we'll get to that at the end of the chapter. For now, though, potions class. Let me call up the slide. Because we have to deal with Professor Snape. Potions lessons took place down in one of the dungeons. It was colder here than up in the main castle, and would have been quite creepy enough without the pickled animals floating in glass jars all around the walls. Snape, like Flitwick, started the class by taking the roll call, and like Flitwick, he paused at Harry's name. Ah, yes, he said softly. Harry Potter, our new celebrity. Draco Malfoy and his friends Crabbe and Goyle sniggered behind their hands. Snape finished calling the names and looked up at the class. His eyes were black like Hagrid's, but they had none of Hagrid's warmth. They were cold and empty and made you think of dark tunnels. You are here to learn the subtle science and exact art of potion-making, he began. He spoke in barely more than a whisper, but they caught every word. Like Professor McGonagall, Snape had the gift of keeping a class silent without effort. As there is little... Excuse me. As there is little foolish wand-waving here, many of you will hardly believe this is magic. I don't expect you will really understand the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes, the delicate power of liquids that creep through human veins, bewitching the mind, ensnaring the senses. I can teach you how to bottle fame, brew glory, even stopper death, if you aren't as big a bunch of dunderheads as I usually have to teach. More silence followed this little speech. Harry and Ron exchanged looks with raised eyebrows. Hermione Granger was on the edge of her seat, 
and looked desperate to start proving that she wasn't a dunderhead. <laughs> I'm a mad hatter in the YouTube chat room says, can we swear in here? Because Snape makes me sweary. Yes, I think I think swearing in response to Snape is entirely appropriate. <laughs> the differences between... We'll get to Snape in just a moment, I promise. But the differences between potions and, and the other kinds of magic that we have and will see seem striking. Spells manifest from the body directly. They're accompanied by words and actions. They are a thing that the wizard does. But potions are stealthy. They're indirect. They're darker and, you could argue, inherently treacherous in purpose. They affect without the action. Or at least they affect divorced from the action, which can be functionally within a certain span the same thing. It's interesting too, isn't it, to look at the things that Snape accounts for <laughs> through the use of potions. I can teach you to bottle fame, brew glory, even stopper death. Man, that's a Slytherin, isn't it? Right to the bone. It's all about power and personal preservation. It's striking. It's, <laughs> it's an outstanding piece of writing. This is one of the moments when you have to stop and say, this is what first-year students do on their first Friday. They're taken down into the dungeon to learn how to brew things that can stop her death. Even in Hogwarts, that seems a little extreme. But from the point of view of this book, from the point of view of this fairy story, I think it totally works. It's really quite beautiful. And I do feel, this is something that I at least am going to be keeping track of as we as we move forward um, through the rest of this book, and, and ultimately, I'm sure, through the rest of the entire series, I'm going to be keeping a close eye on this idea of power separated from consequence. This idea of effect separated from cause. Because I'm fairly certain that we'll find that that is always evil. That that is a hallmark of the the dubious, at least, if not if not outright evil. Yeah. Yes, and we're, we're, we're see. I'm seeing a little a little uh, a little disagreement here. Yes, Snape so clearly. Uh, this is Katie on Twitter. With Snape so clearly hating teaching, the first time I read it, I always wondered why is he even at Hogwarts? We're getting a few people echoing that. Yes, yes. And Chris, of course, uh, pulls out the, the, the clarification that, yes, of course, they're not being taught to stopper death. They are being talked about the stoppering, talked to about the stoppering of death. Yes, they're not necessarily going to learn that today, but this is the framework that's presented. Contrast that with Professor McGonagall's class, her transmutation class, where they are simply given a matchstick and told to turn it into a needle. She does the demonstration with the, the, the table and the pig, the, you know, the transmutation of the, the object into the animal and back again. But that is a harmless, <laughs> a harmless demonstration. Here we see something else. And even the language that's used. No foolish wand waving. Many of you will hardly believe this is magic. We're talking about softly simmering cauldrons and shimmering fumes. We're using very sibilant language here, which, of course, seems wildly appropriate. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> 
I love that uh, Barbara in the YouTube chat here, and I love that Snape puzzles us through the whole series. Why does he automatically hate Harry? Well, that raises an interesting question, doesn't it? Do you guys remember what your take was the first time you read this? Did you have a sense of Snape and why he would hate Harry? The first time I read this book, I I, I think it's that line about bottling fame and brewing glory. I I thought that it was simply about celebrity. I thought that we were seeing a character here, and, and I was thoroughly ignorant, I dare say, but I thought that we were seeing a character here who was much more shallow, and, and because he is so obvious, I assumed that he was simply a book arc protagonist, a, a book arc antagonist, excuse me, um, who was going to, yes, torment these three young people, and, and by that tormentation, forge a fast friendship. Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> oh, and G. Smith says, I've met a few teachers in my day who seem to hate teaching. Yeah. Oh, and Kristen says, I thought he was just a Slytherin. Which, also, not an, not an unfair position on that, I think. Okay. Oh, and Carolyn says, contrast between transfiguration and potions. Oh, the, the, the contrast, excuse me, Carolyn. The contrast, Twitter foils us with its 140 character limit, doesn't it? Carolyn says, the contrast between the transfiguration and the potions intros, probably a good analogy for McGonagall versus Snape. Practical versus... Snape. Yeah, it's it's that direct action versus the delayed action. I think there's something to that. We'll, we'll definitely come back to that in due course. All right, let's move on. Snape questions Harry repeatedly, deliberately humiliating him in front of the class, and I do, I do love and adore the beat of Hermione stretching her hand ever so high, just ever so high, because she knows the answer and she wants to prove it. It's very good. Snape concludes by deducting a point from Gryffindor for Harry's impertinence, and then we move on to the class itself. Things didn't improve for the Gryffindors as the potions lesson continued. Snape put them all into pairs and set them to mixing up a simple potion to cure boils. He swept around in his long black cloak, watching them weigh dried nettles and crush snake fangs, criticizing almost everyone except Malfoy, whom he seemed to like. He was just telling everyone to look at the perfect way Malfoy had stewed his horned slugs when clouds of acid-green smoke and a loud hissing filled the dungeon. Neville had somehow managed to melt Seamus's cauldron into a twisted blob, and their potion was seeping across the stone floor, burning holes in people's shoes. Within seconds, the whole class was standing on their stools, while Neville, who had been drenched in the potion when the cauldron collapsed, moaned in pain as angry red boils sprang up all over his arms and legs. "'Idiot boy!' snarled Snape, clearing the spilled potion away with one wave of his wand. "'I suppose you added the porcupine quills before taking the cauldron off the fire!' Neville whimpered as boils started to pop up all over his nose. "'Take him up to the hospital wing,' Snape spat at Seamus. "'Then he rounded on Harry and Ron, who had been working next to Neville. "'You, Potter, why didn't you tell him not to add the quills? "'Thought he'd make you look good if he got it wrong, did you? "'That's another point you've lost for Gryffindor.'" So we have here, of course, the completely unjustifiable vengeance, (laughs) the unjustifiable hatred uh, of Harry by Snape, Um, But we also see, of course, the first beat in the sad story of Neville Longbottom. (laughs) Oh, God, this kid. 
this this kid. We'll talk more about Neville in in due course. Well, Margaret asks, where and when did Hermione first get exposed to magic since she comes from a muggle family? Did she have a mentor? Yes, we don't have a strong sense of Hermione's pre, you know, invitation to Hogwarts, or (laughs) invitation, acceptance letter to Hogwarts, I suppose. We don't have a strong sense of how aware of magic she was prior to that, but she certainly studied since then. Um, At the very least, she's, she's devoured every book in her collection in the last month. Yeah. And Lee pulls out one of the things that I wanted to point out, too. Foolish wand-waving has a point. Yes, after being so down on on the wand-waving art of magic, that's how Snape takes care of things here. Yeah. Good, good, good. (laughs) Oh, we're getting a lot of poor Neville's. Bless Neville's. Oh, (laughs) we'll talk about Neville in just a little while. Yes. Now, though, I think is as good a time as any if you'll permit me a little digression here, now is as good a time as any to consider the nature of magic in the Harry Potter universe. Brewing potions here seems to be as simple as following a an alchemical formula. But the responses the responses are clearly beyond what you would expect in the mundane world, so there must be some kind of magical component. It seems clear by intent, if not by, you know, factual detail, that that a muggle in a muggle environment adding these components in this way wouldn't achieve the same thing, right? Oh, Brooke pulls out a really great point on Twitter here. Neville shows us that not everyone sorted into Gryffindor is obviously bright. Yes, that is a great thing to think about as we move through these chapters. What does Neville show us about Gryffindor? What are the virtues that he brings? Because Harry's are obvious, and we'll spend a lot of time on those. Ron's are quieter, but no less striking. Hermione's, again, very obvious. Why is Neville on the good guy team? Let's let's think about that as we move. Garrett says Neville is the butt monkey, even more so than Xander. I'm not sure anyone is the butt monkey more than Xander, but I see where you're going with that, certainly. <laughs> little shout-out to our, our Buffy viewers. Um... <laughs> I don't know for sure that these things take place in a different world. We've already had talk of vampires. So, the the, the, the functioning of potions does seem to include some kind of, of magical component. It, it could be magical ingredients, it could be the synthesis of, of alchemy and spellcraft. There could be, we don't get enough information within the text here to say for sure that there isn't an actual spellcasting component to the preparation of a potion. And I do know that we'll get a lot of this explained later. Um, but but Potion's class... Let me cancel this line. Potion's class is represented as being different. It is represented as being other. And I wanted to, to study for a moment exactly how that interaction and contrast works. What do we make of the idea of, of learning in general <laughs> at Hogwarts in this context? What are... I guess, what are the the epistemological realities of of trying to teach people to use magic? What is the sense of knowledge that we are trying to impart? Is it just like Muggle school? Is it just like the mundane world where you study a fact so that you know that fact so that you can apply that fact? Or is there a measure of, I don't know, artistry, talent, raw, arcane power? Is there something else? What is the metaphor that we need to understand? Is learning magic like learning math? Is learning magic like learning the flute? Is learning magic like learning 
to box or to fence. Here's what we know. <laughs> Magic, particularly potions, seem to function predictably. If you do the same thing, you will achieve the same result. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of randomness at this point. That extends beyond the, the correct way to cast a spell or to create a potion, because when Neville does the wrong thing, when his technique is poor, Snape is able to accurately discern exactly what Neville did wrong to achieve that result. So it's not simply the case that that magic is, is wild and is random and will crackle out of control if not done properly. It seems to be more predictable and more formulaic than that. There does seem to be a strict order to the lessons, and progression seems to be implied. So you learn something in week one that will help you understand the thing that you're going to learn in week two, which seems to make sense, but isn't necessarily a given, I guess, in this case. In almost every way, it seems that magic can be taught as a system that obeys rules, as, as a system that will produce constant results. Constant results that vary according to According to the individual wizard, perhaps, and every time we start talking about wizardry like this, I, I, I keep flashing back to uh, Professor McGonagall's comment right there in the first chapter when she talks about how powerful Dumbledore is, but there are things that he won't do, and that is what separates him from Voldemort. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. E.R. Lamp is saying, they don't tell you how. We get, we'll get, swish and flick. But no one says, let the power bubble up inside of you, etc., etc. Change this matchstick into a needle, McGonagall tells them. She's basically saying, just do this. Don't ask how. Yeah, there is certainly a measure to that, right? But even in that, even in the idea that all of these students should be able to do the same thing in the same way, we seem to be approaching a structured, organized hierarchy of knowledge. You know, this should work in the way that we broadly expect a science to work, despite the fact that it is magical, despite the fact that it is counter-scientific or contra-scientific. So this magic itself seems to be a mystery that can be unlocked simply by the, uh, the application of knowledge. This is a if it is not itself, you know, inherently kind of epistemologically rigorous, it is at least unlocked through the application of particular key knowledge. Even if understanding the world doesn't explain to you why these four components, when mixed together, will create this particular potion, understanding that these four components mixed together will give you this potion allows you to make the potion. Do you see what I mean? The difference between understanding the underlying systems and understanding enough for, for practical application. This is important, believe me. I know, that was quite the digression, I get it. I studied philosophy in university, sometimes it comes out. Here's the thing, though. This is why it's important, is that the thing that I just described could also describe natural philosophy, the, the pre-scientific kind of science that was being done throughout everything from basically the late medieval to the Enlightenment periods. Science at that time was not about the construction of a rigorous hierarchy. It was not even necessarily about understanding the underlying rules because we didn't have the technology to understand the underlying rules. It was about creating a robust, functional, applicable kind of science. That was what natural philosophy got us. A natural philosophy, of course, led us directly to the alchemists, which led, in turn, to the Philosopher's Stone. The point I'm making is that the treatment of magic here does not seem to be coincidental. 
The treatment of magic seems to me, at least, to be making very direct reference. Purposeful reference? Perhaps not. <laughs> you know, conscious, deliberate reference? Perhaps not. But, but there seems to be a direct connection between the way that magic works in the Harry Potter universe and the way that natural philosophers of the 16th, 17th centuries believed that science worked. That with sufficient information, one could simply do the right thing at the right moment, and the results would be magical, miraculous. Because you didn't need that rigorous understanding of the underlying systems. And again, that would be, I think, an interesting observation anyway. That's why I share it with you, because I believe it's interesting. <laughs> but more importantly, the, the echo of natural philosophy, and particularly the specific beat of, of alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone, implies to me that this is, like I said, if not purposeful, then at least enormously significant. What do you think of that? Is there anything there? Carolyn says boxing is a good analogy. You can be taught the technique, but some will just naturally be faster and hit harder. You can improve. I like that. I like that. Yes, ER Lamp also says, and apparently Snape doesn't give any practical demonstrations. He just gives them the book and their supplies and lets them be. Yes, he doesn't... Trying to impress them would almost be a waste of his energies, right? And yet, he goes out of his way to humiliate Harry specifically. He has a contempt for the other children, but he has a personal animosity. It's a general kind of muted contempt for the other children, except perhaps Malfoy. But his animosity with Harry is personal and strident. Yeah. Good, good, good. Good, good, good. Okay. Roby says, so wizard school is equivalent to muggle school, pretty much. Perhaps, yeah. I, we would need to give that more thought, I think, and certainly see more of the structure of Hogwarts. But we'll get toward that. Uh mm. <laughs> We will move toward that at the end of this book. We won't get great insight into that until the subsequent books. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and of course, a couple of people are pulling out here the, the oft-observed <laughs> truism about Hogwarts. It's great that these people are learning how to make spells, uh, how to make potions and cast spells. Is no one teaching them math? Is no one teaching them literature? Is Harry going to graduate and be, I don't know, effectively illiterate in English, but, but super literate, you guys, in ancient Latin? Yeah. <laughs> Jennifer says, so the old school philosophers just couldn't get the alchemy to work because they were all muggles. It's so obvious now. Damn, Jennifer, I think you might be right. I think you might be onto something there. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. No, I do think, by the way, I, I do think that there is a sufficient amount of applied math, applied English, applied history, applied geography that these kids will learn in this class. Applied physics, they're studying astronomy, they have to know about physics. There may be, you know, I don't know if there's a, if there's a compelling thermodynamic component to particular spells, if there's a particular, uh, uh, you know, Newtonian component to, to certain types of spells, of movement spells, of levitation, perhaps. Perhaps they have to understand the laws of motion so that they can fly on their broomsticks. Yeah. Oh, and Chris says rather beautifully, McGonagall shows Snape tells. Yes. Very good. McGonagall is a much better storyteller. It is true. It is true. All right. Let us keep moving on here. After classes, Harry and Ron go to visit with Hagrid, who is in possession of a large black boarhound named Fang. 
who is at least somewhat less formidable than he seems. There's some polite chit-chat, and then we arrive at this slide right here. Harry told Hagrid about Snape's lesson. Hagrid, like Ron, told Harry not to worry about it, that Snape liked hardly any of the students. But he seemed to really hate me. Rubbish, said Hagrid. Why should he? Yet Harry couldn't keep thinking that Hagrid... Excuse me. Yet Harry couldn't help thinking that Hagrid didn't quite meet his eyes when he said that. As your brother Charlie, Hagrid asked Ron. I liked him a lot. Great with animals. Harry wondered if Hagrid had changed the subject on purpose. While Ron told Hagrid all about Charlie's work with dragons, Harry picked up a piece of paper that was lying on the table under the tea cosy. It was a cutting from the Daily Prophet. Gringotts break in latest. Investigations continue into the break-in at Gringotts on 31st July, widely believed to be the work of dark wizards or witches unknown. Gringotts goblins today insisted that nothing had been taken. The vault that was searched had in fact been emptied the same day. But we're not telling you what was in there, so keep your noses out of it if you know what's good for you, said a Gringotts spokesgoblin this afternoon. Harry remembered Ron telling him on the train that someone had tried to rob Gringotts. But Ron hadn't mentioned the date. Hagrid, said Harry. That Gringotts break-in happened on my birthday. It might have been happening while we were there. There was no doubt about it. Hagrid definitely didn't meet Harry's eyes this time. The plot thickens. <laughs> let's let's welcome our uh, most conspicuous reference yet to Charlie Weasley. Uh, quite the champ. Quite the superhero. That Charlie Weasley. Quite the... Uh, Quite the example for Ron to follow. My God. <laughs> Some thoughts to ponder here before we move on. I like the detail that it is a newspaper cutting that Harry finds, because that implies that Hagrid, in fact, cut it out of the newspaper. Why would Hagrid cut this plot-relevant piece of information out of the newspaper? I think because it's a mark of his success. I think it's because it's proof that he did the task he was given. He did it well, and he did it in the nick of time. He saved the day. Why did the Daily Prophet report this story with such precious little new information <laughs> and almost no editorial content? Why, why this newspaper? What kind of, of newspaper are we supposed to think the Prophet is at this point? That is a harder question to answer, but I like the character beat of Hagrid saving this this cutout story that basically confirms his own belief in himself, that when there's a job to be done, he is the man to do it, that he can be relied upon, that he can be trusted. Remember in those earlier chapters what a big deal he makes about being trusted by Dumbledore himself? It's really quite a sweet character beat. I like that. Yes, yes, yes. Lance says Hagrid is prideful. Yes, I think think so, but it's it's a pride that comes from a position of service. You know? It's, it's, it's not that he is prideful in that he sets himself above others, or sets himself even, I would say, apart from others. It's a pride that he takes in the accomplishment of a simple task that has been given to him, and I genuinely think, much more importantly, the trust that has been bestowed in him. And of course, you know, we have to reflect on how important trust and these simple accomplishments would be to a man who was expelled from Hogwarts for reasons as yet unknown. I'm sure we'll never find out. 
I'm sure we'll never find it. <laughs> Nora says, Robbie, I, oh, I'm, there's a conversation going on. Yes. Oh, to a wizard school where she'd learn magic instead of maths. Oh, we're talking about Hermione and her parents. Yes. Nora says, I, oh, <laughs> scrolling so fast. You guys are so chatty. Nora says, I always wondered how Hermione folks were so down with Hogwarts, dentists with romantic souls. To which Garrett replies, easy. They were nerds. Yeah. I, we're not going to get to spend a great deal of time uh, on this subject. I love the idea of nerd wizards. I love it. It's so great. I love... <laughs> Perhaps it is a function of growing up with comic books in the 1990s when everyone was too cool for school and everyone was, was wry and grim and dark all the time. I have such a soft spot in my heart for characters who undergo great adventures and take the time out to say, this is so cool. This thing that I get to do that the kid at home is reading about and, and is thinking is really cool is really cool. I like that stuff. What can I say? <laughs> and Nora says, nerds, yeah. Oh, and Robbie pulls out, yes, of course, Spokes Goblin. I do love Spokes Goblin. Right. <laughs> good, good, good. All right, all right. You guys are chatty. <laughs> let us move on to chapter nine because we are an hour in and i have a few slides left to go here let us move on to chapter nine the midnight duel we open the new chapter with the deepening uh enmity between harry and draco malfoy it, it does seem to mature a little in the uh in the gap there between the the uh the chapters we also have the news that flying classes are about to begin we waste no time at all and if you want to look at at narrative efficiency usually in the span of these seminars i'm going to be talking about these books from a, a reader's perspective rather than a writer's perspective but my god you can learn a lot as a writer about narrative efficiency some of this prose is so cut back it is so spare it gives you just what you need and no more we could have spent pages pages with purple prose descriptions of hogwarts with with expanded uh, introductions to all of our cast Instead, within the span of a page, we're down on the lawn, we're, we're ready to go, we have our brooms laid out for us, and we're ready to begin flying. We're introduced to Madame Hooch, and we get started. There's another wrinkle here, too. Let me kind of preface this. There's another wrinkle here, too, in our understanding of magic and how it works, because the broomsticks seem to be magical in and of themselves. They seem to be inherently magical. They seem to be magical tools or appliances, much as Dumbledore's uh, put-outer was back in Chapter 1. They seem to be magical, rather than responding to an external magic directly, and yet they're clearly controlled by... Well, they're controlled by something, aren't they? Let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little about what the broomsticks are controlled by in due course. Um... Yes, all right. So after Neville falls from his broomstick and breaks his wrist, that's two for Neville, the Slytherins and Gryffindors face off against each other. It's this great sequence, you know. Uh, Neville is taken off uh, once more to the hospital wing. He's going to get... Uh, I, I hope he has a reward card or something. He's going to be building up points that he can redeem for a vacation, uh, which he'll probably need before too much longer. And here, out in... 
this wonderful kind of, of, of evocative lawn with the forbidden forest brooding in the background, you know? And there's no mention made of Hogwarts, and yet it's right there. In my mind's eye as I'm reading this, I, I see the, the silhouette almost of this immense castle rising above them. So now we have the Slytherins and the Gryffindors facing off against each other. This is what I was talking about last week. This is the narratively functional uh, reason for having these houses. It's because it's gangs. That's what this is. This is gang membership. When the Slytherins and the Gryffindors face off, it is like the Sharks and the Jets. I even assume that there is finger snapping. I can only assume that as Crab and Goyle are walking along behind Draco Malfoy, they're giving the finger snaps. <sighs> Malfoy takes Neville's uh, Rememberall and threatens to put it in a tree. Harry has had enough, though, and takes off after him. On this slide is where he does that. Here we are. Wait, that's not this slide. I skipped ahead on my slides. There we go. Harry grabbed his broom. No, shouted Hermione Granger. I love... Let me interrupt here just for a moment to say, I love (laughs) that Hermione Granger is always referred to as Hermione Granger. I love that they have... (laughs) They use her full name, just like she's in trouble with, with her parents. It's a great beat. No, shouted Hermione Granger. Madam Hooch told us not to move. You'll get us all in trouble. Harry ignored her. Blood was pounding in his ears. He mounted the broom and kicked hard against the ground, and up, up, he soared. Air rushed through his hair, and his robes whipped out behind him, and in a rush of fierce joy, he realized he'd found something he could do without being taught. This was easy. This was wonderful. He pulled his broomstick up a little to take it even higher, and heard screams and gasps of girls back on the ground, and an admiring whoop from Ron. He turned his broomstick sharply to face Malfoy in midair. Malfoy looked, stunned. "'Give it here!' Harry called, "'or I'll knock you off that broom!' "'Oh, yeah?' said Malfoy, trying to sneer, but looking worried. Harry knew somehow what to do. He leaned forward and grasped the broom tightly in both hands, and it shot toward Malfoy like a javelin. Malfoy only just got out of the way in time. Harry made a sharp about-face and held the broom steady. A few people below were clapping. "'No crab and goyle up here to save your neck, Malfoy!' Harry called. The same thought seemed to have struck Malfoy. "'Catch it if you can, then!' he shouted, and threw the glass ball high into the air and streaked back toward the ground. Harry saw, as though in slow motion, the ball rise up in the air and then start to fall. He leaned forward and pointed his broom handle down. Next second he was gathering speed in a steep dive, racing the ball. Wind whistled in his ears, mingled with the screams of people watching. He stretched out his hand. A foot from the ground, he caught it, just in time to pull his broom straight, and he toppled gently onto the grass, with the rememberall clutched safely in his fist. Harry Potter! Little Minerva McGonagall right there at the end. So this is an interesting moment. And my question for you is this. What is going on here? (laughs) What is happening in this moment? What do we see from Harry specifically? I think it's interesting that the broomstick should respond so completely to Harry, particularly in this moment, where he is lost in, (laughs) well, lost in whatever emotion he is feeling. The broomstick simply responds. It simply gives everything that he needs. It is a tool put to excellent use. But what is driving it? What is driving Harry here? 
What compels him to chase after Malfoy and recover this rememberal? What is this even? <laughs> you know, is this a cherished artifact or is it a trinket? It's an interesting question because there are some things in Harry's description, in Harry's narrative there that are almost worrying. He mounted the broom and kicked hard against the ground, and up, up, he soared, air rushed through his hair, and his robes whipped out behind him, and in a rush of fierce joy, he realized he'd found something he could do without being taught. This was easy. This was wonderful. Well, by God, aren't we trained to be fearful and suspicious of things that come too easily, of power that comes too easily? This was easy, and this was wonderful. And the fierce joy, too. This isn't a joy that he's taking from the restoration of justice, nor yet from the chastisement of a bully. This is a joy that he is taking in the simple exercise of his power. Doesn't that remind us of chapter one? Doesn't that remind us of the key distinction that Minerva McGonagall called between Dumbledore and Voldemort? This is a troubling moment for me. And I think, it, I think it's purposefully so. In the childhood fantasy, this is a great moment. Harry's found something he can do. This is powerful. This is, this is literally magical, you know, not just in the flying a broomstick sense, but in the revelatory sense of the word. You know, this is something new that comes out of a clear blue sky that changes his place. This is something that elevates him. This is the first time that he's actually acquitted himself with anything like the, the, the skill or the talent or the power that may be expected of him by the students at Hogwarts, certainly by Hagrid, certainly by the faculty, all the way back to, you know, the people he met in the Leaky Cauldron. Yes, absolutely, Harry wants to retrieve Neville's rememberal. Yes, absolutely, Harry wants to knock Malfoy down a peg or two. But it seems to me that there's something else in play here. I do think when Harry dives after the rememberal, I do think we see a shift there. <laughs> and I think we see the essential virtue that is powering Harry's broomstick, that is generating this, this, this miraculous flight, this surprising, you know, uh, advanced, sophisticated flight. It's Harry's courage. It's Harry's absolute and indefatigable courage. And I will remind you, if you maybe missed last week, Courage is the core trait associated with Gryffindors. Thrice associated with Gryffindors, even just in the Sorting Hats song. Courage. Courage above all other things. Harry has it to spare. And it does take courage to stand up to a bully. And, and I absolutely want to make it clear, I am by no means condemning Harry for this. This is absolutely a moment of triumph, and, it, and it's a moment that I'm very glad that we have. It's a great beat in the story. At the same time, there's something about that unrestrained exercise of power and the joy that he takes in it that makes you wonder, well, was the Sorting Hat right? Is there something of Slytherin in Harry? Which, again, we only care about because Harry cares about it so much. Harry didn't want to be Slytherin, and yet, here, from a certain point of view, those are the traits that he's displaying. Power for its own sake. Dominance over others. It's a conversation that we will continue to have throughout the rest of the book. Katie says, Harry has found his community. He wants to protect it so he doesn't lose it. That's interesting, yeah. 
Yeah. Jan says loyalty, the trait of Gryffindor shown at this moment, also that Harry has some gifts. Loyalty is a trait usually associated with Hufflepuff, though. Is there an account given in this book of, of loyal or in, in, in the, the, the world of Harry Potter in general, of loyalty being a key trait of, of Gryffindors? Hmm. But I do think you're right. I do think it's about the it's about the commitment to his friends, certainly. Yes. Yes. Good, good, good. <laughs> Maya says he's never ever had that kind of power before so of course he's thrilled by it yes absolutely and even if you look at this in its most kind of in its most sinister aspect even if you hear you know if this were Star Wars episode 1 and you get the brooding kind of beat of the Imperial March we get that dun 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 behind this action it's not worrying there's, there's nothing there that actually causes us to worry there's this slightest shadow cast over this moment of valor of courage of skill of power and of, in a very real sense, place. Harry fits now for the first time. This is the transformative moment. And we'll see how that ripples out in the future. Next week, when we talk a little more about Quidditch. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Good, good, good. Chris says, I think possibly it's a bit early to be equating competence with power over others, a trace of foreshadowing, perhaps. Yeah, it's always tempting, of course, in this instance to to look ahead. I was trying very carefully to draw just from what we had from the sorting hat, uh, from what we had of our depiction of of, uh, Draco Malfoy, that conversation between McGonagall uh, and Dumbledore back in Chapter 1. But yes, you're right. We will certainly be able to look back on this in due course. Jennifer says, wow, we're all huge nerds. That we are, Jennifer. That we are. <laughs> I'm a Mad Hatter, says, ironically, Slytherins and Gryffindors seem to be the most loyal, not Hufflepuffs. We will talk in, <laughs> we will talk in due course about how apt the descriptors of each house actually turn out to be. Um, we'll probably talk about that at the end of the, the, end of the book. All right. Oh, note two that even as Harry's courage waxes, even as he comes into his power and becomes more courageous, Draco's courage wanes. We see here much more of the pale boy we met back in Diagon Alley, much less of the cocky bully that we see when he is in the company of of his henchmen. Professor McGonagall takes Harry away from practice and introduces him to the head of the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Harry, it turns out, is the perfect seeker, and the rules can be bent to accommodate his awesomeness when you are special enough, the world will change itself to accommodate you. Um, we're, I'm being somewhat, you know, snarky about that, but we will, we will talk about exceptionalism. We're going to talk about Quidditch next week is what I'm saying, because Quidditch is insane. We're going to talk about Quidditch next week. We're going to talk about the, the, its brilliant lunacy. We're going to talk about the tension between individual accomplishment and team accomplishment and how, while that makes not a blind bit of sense in the real world, you know, if we try and figure out how Quidditch would actually work as a sport, as a game, it fails at the most trivial level and yet works beautifully in a narrative context. It's, it's, it is possibly, Quidditch as a creation is possibly the most the most J.K. Rowling piece of world building that we're going to see throughout the entire run of Harry Potter. It is the most... 
<laughs> it is the most thoroughly world built. You know, all the details are there. She she spent a lot of time working out the beats. It's flawed at a fundamental, you know, level of rationality, of, of common sense, of, of not rationality, that's not fair, of real world applicability, but it is flawed there because it has to do something much more important, which is accommodate the, the individual exceptionalism of Harry Potter in particular. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that when we get to it next week, though I appear to be talking about it a great deal right now. Why is Harry, though, such an exceptional Quidditch player? Why is he so exceptional <laughs> that McGonagall is willing to bend the rules to accommodate him on the team? That she is willing to, to delay his punishment? That she is willing to express pride? The only hint that we get from McGonagall prior to this is at the end of the first transmutation class, Hermione comes the closest to transmuting something, to accomplishing anything that she was set before her, uh, that she had set before her. Um, and McGonagall gives her just a rare smile. Here we see McGonagall going out of her way to what? To increase her house's chances? Is this just about the game? Is it just about the sport? Is it about the competition? Is this about something more important for Harry? Yeah. You know, Barbara expresses it beautifully here on Twitter. Every description of Quidditch just makes my spirit soar. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. When you try to work it out in real life terms, it doesn't work. And there's nothing in the world that could be less important than the fact it doesn't make sense in the real world. I mean, don't get me wrong. As, as Jennifer's pointed out, I am a huge nerd. So I do like thinking about how it works in the real world. I do like working out what would it really be like as a game? What would the strategies... If Quidditch were real, what would the Quidditch version of the NFL look like? It would look like a bunch of people waiting around for the Seekers to do their job. Because, okay, no, you see, you're throwing me out here. I'm going to talk about Quidditch next week. All right. <laughs> we close out on the scene. On the touching note that Harry's father was also an excellent Quidditch player himself, and we cut to the Great Hall at dinner. Fred and George are thrilled that Harry is on the team, but it isn't long, of course, before Draco Malfoy shows up and challenges Harry to a wizard duel, and this is the slide that I shared earlier. What is a wizard's duel? said Harry. And what do you mean you're my second? Well, a wizard's duel is to... T uh, a wiz uh, excuse me. Well, a second's there to take over if you die, said Ron casually, getting started on getting started at last on his cold pie. Catching the look on Harry's face, he added quickly, but people only die in proper duels, you know, with real wizards. The most you and Malfoy will be able to do is send sparks at each other. Neither of you knows enough magic to do any real damage. I bet he expected you to refuse anyway. And what if I wave my wand and nothing happens? Throw it away and punch him on the nose, Ron suggested. Excuse me. They both looked up. It was Hermione Granger. Can't a person eat in peace in this place, said Ron. Hermione ignored him and spoke to Harry. I couldn't help overhearing what you and Malfoy were saying. Bet you couldn't, Ron muttered. And you mustn't go wandering around the school at night. Think of the points you'll lose Gryffindor if you're caught, and you're bound to be. It's really very selfish of you. And it's really none of your business, said Harry. Goodbye, said Ron. Here, too, we get these beautiful details. <laughs> Hermione speaks with commas. She speaks in sentence splices constantly. It's great. Here again, we have her introduced as Hermione Granger. Here again, we have Ron's very kind of cavalier approach to personal safety. <laughs> Where was I? Okay, so, uh, oh, let's note first off, uh, before we even continue on, let's note first off that 
Fred and George are reprobates. Fred and George must be costing Gryffindor more points than Harry and Ron ever possibly could. Why is Hermione so attached to Harry and to Ron? Is there perhaps something else at play here? I think there may be. Harry and Ron slip out. I've got to pick up the pace here because I'm running just a little late. Harry and Ron slip out of the Gryffindor dorm that night. They pick up Hermione and Neville on the way. They find their way to the trophy room, the site of the proposed duel, and they wait for Draco to show up. I know I am moving through this very quickly because as we... Oh, let me switch that out to the new... There we go. Because... <laughs> The faster the plot moves here, the more we, um, yes, <laughs> the faster the plot moves here, the, the, the faster we move through the description. The minutes crept by, we are told. He's late. Maybe he chickened out, Ron whispered. Then a noise in the next room made them jump. Harry had only just raised his wand when they heard someone speak, and it wasn't Malfoy. Sniff around, my sweet, they might be lurking in a corner. It was Filch, speaking to Mrs. Norris. Horror struck. Harry waved madly at the other three to follow him as quickly as possible. They scurried silently toward the door, away from Filch's voice. Neville's robes had barely whipped round the corner when they heard Filch enter the trophy room. There he is somewhere, they heard him mutter, probably hiding. This way. Harry mouthed to the others, and petrified, they began to creep down a long gallery full of suits of armor. They could hear Filch getting nearer. Neville suddenly let out a frightened squeak and broke into a run. He tripped, grabbed Ron around the waist, and the pair of them toppled right into a suit of armor. The clanging and crashing were enough to wake the whole castle. Run! Harry yelled, and the four of them sprinted down the gallery, not looking back to see whether Filch was following. They swung around the doorpost and galloped down one corridor, then another, Harry in the lead without any idea where they were going or where they were or where they were going. They ripped through a tapestry and found themselves in a hidden passageway, hurtled along it, and came out near their charms classroom, which they knew was miles from the trophy room. Note the detail at the end there. They flee through the castle. They find themselves unexpectedly near the charm classroom. Harry is in the lead. He is carrying them through this mad flight, through the unpredictable hallways and corridors of Hogwarts. They tear through a tapestry and find themselves in a hidden passageway. Why on earth would you presumably leap at a tapestry <laughs> when all else fails? Harry leads them, either deliberately or not, a long way from the trophy room. Something, let me rephrase that, something leads them a long way from the trophy room. And we must ask again what guiding force, if any, controls the rearrangement of Hogwarts. They run into Peeves. They flee to the end of the corridor. Hermione opens the door with a spell, and they hide from Filch in, of course, and this is the reason that I am talking so ominously about the rearrangement of Hogwarts' internal geography, they find themselves, of course, in the forbidden hallway. What are the chances of that? Yeah. Let's move on to the last slide here. They were looking straight into the eyes of a monstrous dog. A dog that filled the whole space between ceiling and floor. It had three heads, three pairs of rolling mad eyes, three noses twitching and quivering in their direction, three drooling mouths, saliva hanging in slippery ropes from yellowish fangs. It was standing quite still, all six eyes staring at them, and Harry knew that the only reason they weren't already dead was that their sudden appearance had taken it by surprise. But it was quickly getting over that, 
There was no mistaking what those thunderous growls meant. Harry groped for the doorknob. Between Filch and Death, he'd take Filch. They fell backward. Harry slammed the door shut, and they ran. They almost flew back down the corridor. Filch must have hurried off to look for them somewhere else, because they didn't see him anywhere, but they hardly cared. All they wanted to do was to put as much space as possible between them and that monster. They didn't stop running until they reached the portrait of the fat lady on the seventh floor. "'Where on earth have you all been?' she asked, looking at their bathrobes hanging off their shoulders and their flushed, sweaty faces. "'Never mind that! Pigsnout! Pigsnout!' panted Harry, and the portrait swung forward. They scrambled into the common room and collapsed, trembling into armchairs. It was a while before any of them said anything. Neville, indeed, looked as though he'd never speak again. "'What do you think they were doing, keeping a thing like that locked up in the school?' said Ron, finally. "'If any dog needs exercise, that one does!' Hermione got both her breath and her bad temper back again. "'You don't use your eyes, any of you, do you?' she snapped. "'Didn't you see what he was standing on?' "'The floor?' Harry suggested. "'I wasn't looking at its feet. I was too busy with its heads.' "'No, not the floor. It was standing on a trapdoor. It's obviously guarding something.' And that's pretty much where we wrap up (laughs) tonight's session. Harry puts the pieces together and concludes that whatever Hagrid took from Vault 713 is now under the Forbidden Hallway. He remembers that line that Hagrid had earlier about Hogwarts being an even safer place. So we must ask, as I have before, (laughs) we must ask what force led Harry, guided Harry, forced Harry back to the Forbidden Hallway. What is the the underlying reason that accounts for his <laughs> continual visitation to the Forbidden Hallway? Is there anything? Is this just the force of narrative? Is this what Terry Pratchett called narrativium? <laughs> is that the essential force that binds these events together? Or is there something else here? Is there something that we are supposed to... Let me rephrase that. Is there something that we are supposed to infer from the events as we've seen them thus far that will inform what comes next. It's interesting. It's interesting. Jennifer says, who wears their bathrobe to a wizard's duel? I think that's one of the changes in the American version. I think they're wearing dressing gowns um, in, in the British version. Correct me if I'm wrong. Those of you with British copies of the book, are they wearing dressing gowns at that point? Yeah. Oh, and Margaret's asking, did Malfoy set Harry and crew up to be discovered by Filch? Absolutely. Absolutely, that is what happened. We get a beat right at the beginning of the next uh, the next chapter, well, Malf- uh, where in Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are disappointed to discover that Harry is still in Hogwarts, that he hasn't been ruthlessly expelled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good. Yes. Yeah, both both are on the third floor, yes. The trophy room is conspicuously on the third floor, yes. And it wouldn't necessarily be quite as striking as it is if not for that beat. The, the two things that get me. The three things that get me. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. The three things that get me are Harry leading the way and, and tearing through the tapestry even, leading them away from the trophy room. The second thing is this particular beat that they end up so far away. You know, it, it is explicit that they end up a long way from the trophy room, which, I mean, just given the law of averages, would suggest that, oh, good, right, we're getting dressing gowns equals way classier. Yes, they're wearing dressing gowns. Great, great, great. 
Yes, yes. The dear lamented Terry Pratchett. Actually, mentioning Terry Pratchett uh, reminds me that I need to address the the issue of the outstanding seminar list, since we're all but wrapped up. If you guys have any last questions, uh, shout out about it now. Oh, good, it is. It's dressing gowns. Oh, it's dressing gowns in the Canadian edition, too. Excellent. Okay, great. What is the difference between a robe and a dressing gown? Honestly, Americans don't wear dressing gowns the way that British people, and apparently Canadian people, wear dressing gowns. You will wear a dressing gown when you are just relaxing. Like You know, if you have, like, a cozy pants day where you're just in your pajamas or in, like, sweatpants, British people will put a, uh, put a dressing gown on over the top. Bathrobes, I feel, are a more, a more specific uh, item of clothing, despite the fact that they are identical items of clothing. Unless you're talking, like, the, the quilted, you know, velvet smoking jacket. That's something else entirely. Um... <laughs> where was I? Right, the seminar list. We are now halfway through, believe it or not, our Harry Potter seminar, and that means that next week I'm going to unveil the shortlist for the next seminar. There will be a month of voting. We'll take a few weeks off after Harry Potter. We'll, we'll, we'll gather ourselves. We'll read whatever book is selected next. So stick around next week. Uh, there will be a page go up on Storywonk with the shortlist, with the, the voting form that you can fill out. I'm going to try and implement a slightly better system than we had last time, because last time meant a lot of work, uh, basically. I think there were going to be six or seven books on the list. We have a wide range. I'm not going to spoil that tonight, but but stick around next week for the announcement of the new shortlist. The reason that I was reminded, of course, uh, is that there's a very good chance there will be a Terry Pratchett novel on that list. If you have a particular favorite Terry Pratchett novel that you would like me to look at. Um, I'm a huge fan of his work. I'm a huge fan of all of his work. Uh, if you have a particular favorite and a particular argument why that is the Terry Pratchett book that should be on the shortlist over some of the others, then get in touch and let me know. I'm kind of inclined to go for my favorites, which are not perhaps the, not perhaps the highest profile of his books. Um, I'm inclined to go for some of the, some of the Commander Vimes stories. Uh, as, as long-term listeners to Story Wonk will know, those are the books that just floor me. Nightwatch and Thud in particular just floor me. Yes. So get in touch if, if there's a particular Terry Pratchett book that you would like to see on the list. Um, no promises, but we'll do what we can. And next week I will announce that list. All right, let me see here. Oh, Lance pulled out, yes, Hermione's last line. Killed or worse, expelled. <laughs> Much like Claire, yes. She has her priorities straight. Very good, very good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yes, Chris says where to start in the disc world. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you want to start at the beginning, like thematically you want to start at the beginning, but the truth is that the first three Discworld novels are not what the Discworld became. They're, they're good. They're solid, you know satirical fantasy novels, The Color of Magic, The Light, Fantastic, and Equal Rights, which is the one that nobody ever talks about. Um, they're fine, but we don't really hit the ground running until we arrive at Mort. And do we want to start with Mort? If we're going to jump in, we could jump in pretty much anywhere. There's, yeah, there's a lot. I'm a Mad Hatter says, Orphan Black is so good, I'm watching it right now. Orphan Black is a knockout, yeah. We we have, uh, Lonnie and I have seen Orphan Black, um... Let me see. Lonnie's seen the first two seasons. I've seen the first season and a half. I actually fell off of it and need to go back to it. We will definitely do a light bulb or something about Orphan Black in due course. You know what? That is a conversation for another show. I could be here all night talking about Story Monk. If you are Patreon subscribers, though, do stick around because we will be having our first live Patreon Q&A in the very near future. It's basically going to be just like this. Lonnie will be sitting here with me. We'll do an hour of Q&A on Twitter, on YouTube. 
we'll, we'll do the whole thing. Chris might send me a pitch for Mort. I, Mort is, yes, Mort is way, way up there. Lance says A Game of Thrones. A Game of Thrones was on the last shortlist um, and was not terribly well received. Um, I do think it came in fourth, ultimately, if memory serves. Um, Pride and Prejudice was a very close runner-up to Harry Potter. That will definitely be on the shortlist. That's earned its place. Yeah. Barbara says Dragon Riders of Pern by Anne McCaffrey. Uh, that is definitely one uh, that is full of potential for the future. Uh, I need to reread that before I can put it on the list. I only want to put things on the short list that I'm, I'm absolutely confident, you know, I have interesting things to say about. So, so I do remember reading Dragon Riders of Pern when I was but a wee lad. Uh, I'll need to go back to them and, and, and check that out. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> so yes you can get in touch alistair at storywalk.com you can tweet me at paper bullets on on twitter all week of course or just uh I'll, I'll put a a seminar thing up in the forum i'm sure if i remember all right guys i think we are ready to wrap this up for tonight thank you so much for your time next week let me advance this slide so that i can show you what we are doing next week next week we will be looking at part five facing adversity chapters 10 and 11 and yes oh yes a lot of quidditch oh and a troll fight. <laughs> There's a lot to do. Oh, Jordana says Don Quixote. That would be excellent. That's huge. That's huge. Nora wants Stephen King. Yes, I, I put The Shining on it. Uh, that did not work out terribly well. I would love to do The Shining someday. Maybe we can take an argument for that. I'm a Mad Hatter says, are we taking a break from the Harry Potter series for sure? Yes. I don't want to do back-to-back books um, in a particular series. We will definitely put the Chamber of Secrets uh, on possibly the shortlist after this one. And of course, we are at some point going to do the second Outlander book, Dragonfly and Amber. I'm waiting on stars to give me uh, clarification about when they're going to release season two of the TV show so that we can have those two events complement each other. Lance says The Hobbit. Well, The Hobbit could well be on there, couldn't it? That would be a big one. And Barbara says, what do we think about Thursdays rather than Tuesdays? Let's take that to the forum, I think. I'm actually flexible with that. Yeah. <laughs> let's see. <laughs> all right, guys. Let's wrap it up right there. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for hanging out. I will see you all next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, 9 p.m., Facing Adversity, Chapters 10 and 11. We may switch to uh, to Thursdays in the future, depending on the feedback that I get. But, oh, Chris has writing nights on Thursdays. Well, God knows. Writing trumps all, Chris. I would have to insist if we hold this on Thursdays on the regular that that you write. But <laughs> all right, guys, thank you all so much. I will see you all next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.